You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the 1960s, a psychologist named Timothy Leary, who was famous and known for his controversial use and prescribing of LSD, became the sort of spokesperson for a generation when he famously said, think for yourself and question authority. Now, he was talking about government. He was talking about religion. He was talking about education, essentially structures of power and authority, think for yourself and question that authority. Now, that may not sound all that controversial, especially for us today, but it was pretty groundbreaking. And in that short little statement itself, it communicates a pretty, you know, intense message that in order to think, you must be challenging. You are not thinking if you are not challenging. Only the simple, stupid, like backwoods people follow authority. We, however, are free-thinking, status quo-challenging, authority-resisting, independent thinkers. We are better and brighter and freer. Question authority became the, the mantra of the baby, baby boomer generation who then raised and formed Gen Xers and millennials and as a result, today, statistically, general trust for government among people is at an all-time low. That's probably not a surprise to you. People don't trust the government. And statistically speaking, it's very interesting that among boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials, it's almost completely uh, equal as far as percentages of people that say, yeah, I trust, generally trust the government. Also, Many of us uh, who are raised in the church at certain points and maybe even currently heard, you know, messages and were fed a very steady diet of conspiracy theories and sort of pseudo-religious 
speculation about certain presidents, uh, you know, being the antichrist and, and, you know, hearing these messages that try to shoehorn American politics into the book of Revelation, despite the fact that the book of Revelation has nothing to do with the nation of America. Oh, it's all lining up. It's all lining up. It's all lining up. Which helps us understand why when Paul says in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, why every single one of us is automatically thinking about how that cannot and must not apply to me. That can't apply to us. And yet it does. Let every person. For any of us who would say, well, 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 we've seen too much corruption. We, we, we know too much at this point. We've experienced too many abuses of power. Look at our own nation's broken, tainted history. This can't apply to us. I understand that hesitation, and I have it myself. But let me remind you of who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is saying this and who he's writing to and when. This is, by way of reminder, the Apostle Paul, who himself was imprisoned, beaten, and mistreated by the very Roman authorities he's speaking about. And he's writing to a Roman church who has already experienced significant political, cultural upheaval. Parts of this church were kicked out of the city of Rome for five years, just had to leave their homes and their livelihoods for five years, and are now just returning and finding stability again. And now as this letter is being penned and delivered, they are living under one of the most fierce oppressors of the church named Nero. You ever heard of him? Known as one of the most bloody, fierce oppressors of the church, who later blamed and slaughtered countless Christians in Rome for a fire that he likely started himself. In a Rome where Peter and Paul would find themselves imprisoned, and as church history tells us, both of them would be martyred, killed for the sake of the gospel, Peter himself being hung and crucified upside down in Rome, in the same place, under this same government. Now, unfortunately, we are not given any qualifiers here in this passage. I looked for them. I didn't find them. There are no statements about exceptions or how to respond in certain situations. Well, what about this? Or what about if this happens? And what do we do in, in, in these certain situations? There's no instructions on how to navigate corruption. There's no, like, here's, what, you know, here's how you respond in civil disobedience. There's definitely nothing here about how we are to vote. Paul would have been like, democracy, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Instead, this, this passage, in this passage, a general principle is being laid out. So here's the deal. Instead of jumping to consider all of the exceptions and exploring all that Paul is not mentioning here, which I was very tempted to do, we need to focus on what is being said. And it was interesting. Even as I read the, the commentary on this passage, it seemed like the things that were being neglected are the very things that Paul is saying. So we're not going to focus on what Paul's not saying. We're going to focus on what Paul is saying, and we're going to cover three very important themes if you're taking notes. We're going to look at the position of civil authority, the posture of Christians, 
and the power of Christ. Let's look first at the position of civil authority. Now, as I mentioned, we have been formed to think of authority and to think about power suspiciously. We hear those words and we're like, hmm. That many, if not all, forms of authority are inherently wrong and they are oppressive means of manipulation that have been set up to keep people down. Now, while we have countless examples of broken power systems in history, don't hear me wrong, we do. The Bible does not present authority itself as something wrong. The Bible does not present authority as something evil or sinful, but actually as something designed and given to us by God. And it's helpful to understand where the first mention of authority is found in the Bible. Any guesses? Page one, numero uno, Genesis chapter one, at the creation of humanity, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have what? Dominion, which means rule. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it, which means govern it and have dominion. So right there on page one, God creates humanity in his own image to reflect his character, to reflect how he interacts with this world. And the way that he does this primarily is by giving them rule and the commission to govern. Isn't interesting? Before he commands us to love one another, he commands us to steward faithful authority. So God entrusts the responsibility of governing to humans. We as humans, as these image bearers of God, now operating as these sort of vassal kings, albeit those who do it poorly, those who do it okay, and maybe even once in a while, once in a while, those who do it well. In the final moments of King David's life, he speaks these words in 2 Samuel. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, picture this, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When someone operates in a position of authority under the fear of the Lord and doing his or her job justly, the world is blessed. The people are blessed. There's flourishing. But like anything in creation, sin has broken and tainted authority. That's why we have countless examples in our mind right now of corrupt governments, powers being manipulated, people being manipulated, people being divided, all of the worst examples of politics in our nation and throughout the world. It's sin. 
But just because something has been broken by sin doesn't mean that God has given up on it. We are prime examples of that, amen? We are corrupted by sin and God has not given up on us, nor has he given up on authority as a whole. So this background is helpful in understanding what Paul then is saying when he says again in verse one, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now John Stott, a commentator, points out that this cannot be taken to mean that all of the Herods and the Neros and all of the you know, evil rulers from New Testament times or from more recent years, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddams and fill in the blank of our times that they were personally appointed by God or that God is you know, somehow responsible for their behavior. Paul instead means that all human authority is derived from God's authority. Notice Paul does not say whom God has appointed. He says what God has appointed. He's referring specifically to positions of governing and leading. And so the Bible puts a very, very painfully fine point on this. Look with me in verse 2. Therefore... Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Let that sink in. If your life is marked by rebellion towards leadership, and and, and that is in any kind of form, that sort of you can't tell me what to do mindset, that attitude that very sadly, you know, evangelicals have vividly displayed over the last 18 months while our nation rallied to spare lives. Many, many Christians were saying things like, don't tell me what to do. Don't infringe on my personal rights. Don't tell me to do that. Don't tell me to do this. Don't tell me where I can and can't be. Don't tread on my liberties. So if you, generally speaking, resist being given instruction, if you resist abiding by laws that govern, if you resist reasonable measures that seek the common good, then whether you know it or not, whether you are intending to or not, you are opposing God. And to put an even finer point on it, no one opposes God and comes out ahead. Religious freedom does not mean that the government has no authority over us. You do not get to claim religious freedom anytime something makes you uncomfortable or something inconveniences your flow of life. You don't get to claim religious exemption if you're asked to sacrifice for the greater good of the people. I'm reminded of a story from World War II when we were under threat of invasion. The, the government told churches on the coastlines, hey, at night, at, during your night services, like right now, we're, we're going to ask you to temporarily stop meeting in the evening in order to extinguish the lights and, you know, remove the threat of foreign invasion. And guess what the churches did? They said, that seems reasonable. 
That seems like a reasonable way for us to love our neighbors and care for the common good. You didn't hear fights about, no, we are essential. You're keeping the bars open, why not the churches? No, they said, let's save some lives. Let's save some lives. If anyone knows me well, you know that it pains me to say pretty much everything I've said so far. I'm not the political guy. I'm not the like pro-government guy. I'm just not. I'm apolitical, and I would like to talk about it as infrequently as possible. And if you know me, it's gonna, you're going to know that it pains me to say this next statement, but I'm going to say it because I believe it's true. The government has the God-given right to tell us what to do. And we as believers have the God-mandated responsibility to follow those instructions so long as they do not clearly violate the explicit, not vague, explicit instructions of the Bible. Now we're going to get into that in just a moment. But for right now, let now these words of Paul, again, I'm leaning heavy on scripture tonight. I'm letting him do all the heavy lifting. Hear these words again from Paul. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we see the position of civil authority. Now let's look secondly, and I think that this is Paul's sort of primary point here. Let's look at the posture of Christians. Historically, as I mentioned, Christians in America tend to sort of blindly follow leaders that align with their own political party and then boldly resist leaders of other parties. One president or governor or leader is like a hero, and then the next is a villain, straight from hell. And this goes both ways. This is both conservative evangelicals and liberal mainline Protestants doing this. It's wild how Christians vacillate between calling one leader a representative of God. That's God's man right there. And then the next, that's the Antichrist, clearly. Have you been reading the book of Revelation? Clearly. How, how we huddle around and we're going to pray for this leader and this is God's appointed leader. Let's pray for them. We need to pray for our government. The next person comes and we're like, Ugh, I can't, I'm not even going to pray for them. I'm not even going to pray for them. Romans 13, however, presents us with a better way. One where Christians relate to government not by bowing down. So I really hope you're hearing me accurately. Not by bowing down nor by taking, you know, a stand against the authorities, not in resistance, but something entirely different. But before I, I give my punchline away here, let's look at Paul, what Paul is not telling us here. Paul is not telling us how to vote. You're not going to find anything in the New Testament scriptures or the Old Testament scriptures that are telling you how to vote. Paul's not telling us what forms of government are best. Paul is not affirming founding documents. Paul is not playing party politics. Paul is not leaning left or right or blue 
or red or whatever. He is addressing our posture. When it comes to the topic of politics, we always want to talk about the problem out there. Paul's like, yeah, there's plenty of problems out there. Let's talk about what's in here. Let's talk about your response. Let's talk about your attitude. Let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about your behavior. That's what Paul's talking about. And so the way that we as believers carry ourselves as citizens of heaven, but now living here on earth as gospel witnesses, we do not bow down. Can I get an amen? But we also do not stand against. Instead, we do this revolutionary thing. We come under authority. I told you this was not making the, the best hits list. <laughs> we come under authority. Look at me in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. This word here, subjection, hupotasso, it's an old Greek military term that means to fall in line, to arrange under leadership. It is a voluntary attitude of cooperation, assuming of responsibility, and it can even be translated carrying a burden. This is not easy. It's burdensome. It's challenging. And so this is the posture that is to mark the Christian's life. Not complaining, not scheming, not rebellion, not endless controversy. Submission. Submission. So let's pause real quick and consider our last, I don't know, five years. Circa the beginning of 2016 when things really started picking up steam. Think about our hearts, our motivations, our conversations, our prayers or lack thereof. Let's think about some other things. Are your conversations, your prayers, and your social media posts marked by this posture? Is your preferred news outlet helping you in this call, or is it hindering you in this call? Is Tucker or Anderson or Chris or Kelly helping you in this, or are they hindering you in this? Now, we do know from the whole of the Bible, that there are times where we must make exceptions for the sake of obedience to God. Now, I don't have the opportunity or the time to really go into depth on this, but I just want to mention that there will be times, exceptions. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were strictly warned by the leaders of the Sanhedrin to stop preaching the gospel. Stop that. But as we know, this was something that had been commanded by God and that we are commanded to do as well, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So guess what they did? They kept preaching the gospel. And guess what happened to them? They were arrested, and they were questioned. And as they're being questioned in Acts 5, one of the leaders stood up and said, hey, we strictly charge you to no longer preach in this name, and yet you are filling Jerusalem with this teaching. What say you? But Peter and the apostles, verse 29, answered, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, he's saying, you have presented us with a decision where we have to disobey what you have commanded because it's in violation of what God has commanded. We see this in the book of Exodus. 
as these delivery nurses refused to kill the babies that Pharaoh commanded be murdered. They're like, I don't know, these, these like Israel women are BA, they, they just give birth before we get there, and, uh, and I don't know what happened. Daniel and his friends were commanded by two pagan kings to bow down and worship, and they're like, nope, not going to do it. Not, not going to do it. There are times and places where civil disobedience is necessary, and that's all that I can say about that. But remember, that's not the point of this passage. The point here is to show that we, as God's transformed people, how we are to relate to the world around us. He's digging in deep to our relationships with uh, other believers, with our family in the uh, body of Christ, Uh, our neighbors, our enemies, and now he's talking about how we relate to governing authorities for the sake of the gospel and the reputation of God's people. So, what does submission look like? Paul's telling us that we need to be subject to governing authorities. What does that even look like? Well, look at me in verse 7 because he makes it very plainly clear here. Pay to all what is owed to them, Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So what does submission look like? It looks like paying your taxes on time. (laughs) Historically, the church in Rome resisted paying taxes. Paul's not just saying, like, grabbing an example out of the air, I don't know, like taxes. This was an issue. The Jews specifically took issue with this because what it represented symbolically, they saw this as like an ungodly expression of civil responsibility, specifically because an engraved image on a coin being handed over to Caesar was an act, to them they thought was an act of idolatry. This is, we're paying homage in a way that we're not comfortable And so what they did was they formed a resistance and they sparked what was called the tax revolt. And as a result, the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome in 49 AD for five years. We've talked about that. It was over not paying their taxes. But Paul is saying, guys, 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 this is just not the right issue to fight. There are gonna be things that you're like, I'm dying on this hill. This is not one of them. This isn't the one. This is a wrong battle. Like many of us over the last five years, how the word would speak to us and say, yeah, that was the wrong battle. That was the wrong hill to die on. And what Paul is really pointing out is that you're not only disobeying, but you're bringing dishonor on the church community. You're marring the reputation of this people that are intentionally being faithful in the city. You remember this scene in the Gospels where the religious were trying to trick Jesus? They were always always trying to trick Jesus. And they come to Jesus and they're like, all right, taxes. What about taxes? And he's like, I don't know, go get me one of your coins. And they bring him a coin and he's like, okay, whose image is on the coin? And they're like, Caesar. (laughs) And he's like, okay, we'll render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they're like, oh, okay, well, all right, pay your taxes. Also, how do we submit like this? It means handling your finances responsibly so that you're paying your bills on time. Revenue to whom revenues? Oh, I'm telling you, this is so practical. 
Handle your finances appropriately. All you Dave Ramsey people are like, amen, brother. <laughs> pay, your, pay, pay what is owed. Now, I understand that there are situations that we get ourselves in and we, we just can't. But then there are a lot of times where God's people are just irresponsible. Don't get sent to collections. How do we, how do we submit like this? He also says honor and, and, and respect. We are not in the 21st century of peop, people that do honoring and respect very well. That's like not in our repertoire. I remember Michelle telling a story of her students coming to her with all sorts of complaints about another teacher at their school. And they thought because Michelle's the cool teacher, they could talk all this nonsense about this other person and get away with it. And she's like, mm, whoa, 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 stop right there. And the advice that she gave them was, I think, really relevant to this this afternoon. She said, you don't have to like the person, you don't have to agree with them, but you still have to respect their position. They may not be honorable, but their office is to be honored. They may not be a respectable individual, but their position warrants, demands your respect. I think that that's what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying you have to turn a blind eye to corrupt leaders. Paul's not saying you have to pretend like our leaders are respectable, honorable people. They're just not. But he's saying attach your honor and your respect to something higher than their ongoing nonsense. And here's why it's so important. We bring honor to God when we honor those who are in authority over us, even when they're leaders that we dislike or sharply disagree with. Why is this important? Because... God's honors on the line. Let's be honest for a second. It's, it's a shame how the Christian reputation has been marred by evangelicals that cannot just seem to grasp this concept and who think it is their, single-handedly their responsibility to change the religious and political landscape of America through dishonor, through dishonorable speech, through disrespect, Let's think about the history here in, in Rome and what happened in the centuries following this letter. Let Rome was not overturned and Christianity did not become the official religion through opposition. It wasn't through resistance. It wasn't through Facebook rants about leaders you don't like. It was conquered through faithful submission. Through believers, patiently, quietly, generation after generation doing good and seeking the common good, and then God eventually used their willingness to come under authority to overturn the empire. We think that we can overturn something by dominating over it. That's not how it works. The only way to overturn something is by subversively coming underneath it. And within just a matter of centuries, the same people that were being oppressed became a majority in Rome. Nero was dead. A number of emperors were dead. And the name of Jesus Christ was resounding throughout the city of Rome and continues to this day. So let's look finally at the power of Christ. The power of Christ. What we see through the life of Jesus is that in the kingdom of God, you exercise authority by giving up authority. 
True power is not grasping for position. It's not grasping for authority. True power is laying it down. It's spreading it out. It's relinquishing it. Think about these words from Jesus in John chapter 10. He said this, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That is true power. That's kingdom power. This is the one who did not count equal position with God. And authority is the son of God as something to be grasped. But as Philippians 2 tells us, but he emptied himself. This Jesus set aside all of the privileges of being God and took on the status of a servant. And in this incredibly humbling process of becoming human, he didn't claim any special privileges. He didn't make any demands to be treated a special way. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and he died a selfless, obedient death. In fact, the worst kind of death. You know what kind of death? Death on a Roman cross. Remember, submission is assuming responsibility. Submission is bearing the burden. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He assumed the position of responsibility, but not simply for himself, but for us and for our sin. Jesus being innocent, he came under the harsh punishment of the Roman government. He bore that burden. He carried that burden. He carried the cross. And because of this, Philippians 2 tells us, God raised him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords. The pattern that was then set for the people of God, those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, was this, that the way up is down. And strangely, you rise in the ranks by coming under. Michelle and I went to a, a play of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce yesterday for our anniversary. Kind of ironic, The Great Divorce on our anniversary. But I was reminded of this, it has nothing to do with divorce, by the way. Um, I was reminded of this scene where, oh man, the narrator's guide is showing him heaven and then all of a sudden there's this like royal triumphant entry and this figure comes and everyone's singing and celebrating. And as this woman's figure comes into to view, he turns to the guy and he says, who is this? And he says, it was, it's Sarah Smith. He's like, I've never heard of Sarah Smith. He's like, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. She lived in Golders Green. She was a nobody. <laughs> but nobody's down there or somebody's up here. You rise in the ranks by coming under. And here's the really powerful, powerful, powerful application for us. That the less like a king that you demand to be treated, the more like a king you become. You see, submission doesn't compromise Jesus' dignity and power. According to Philippians 2, submission confirmed it. And the same is going to be true for us. God's word promises it. And now the power to voluntarily come under authority, that power is not grit, that, per, that power is not determination. 
The power that we now possess to come under authority is the very power of Jesus who was willing to do it himself. Jesus is not asking us to go somewhere that he wasn't first willing to go himself. Jesus goes before us. Jesus goes with us, strengthening us. And Jesus will provide for us every necessary grace as we follow in these footsteps. And so in conclusion, I want us to consider this. Consider all of the amazing things that Jesus accomplished through this strange thing called sacrificial submission. What did Jesus accomplish through submission? Well, for starters, he conquered hell, he overcame death, he disarmed Satan, he opened eternity to the nations, he canceled the debt of our sin, he reconciled us to the Father, he tore down the wall of hostility between enemies and formed a global faith that is alive and well thousands of years later. And yet the same Jesus said these strange words, and greater things will you who believe do, who do it in my name. Thank you, sister. Greater things will you do in my name. So let's consider this as I close. What may God want to accomplish through our submission? What overcoming, subversive work has God planned for our participation in our time, in our city, in our cultural, political moment right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this power.